All right, good morning, church family. Good to see your faces. Good to be together. Isn't it nice to be together? Man, is it nice. Whether, uh, whether we're cold or not, whether we're hot or not, whether whatever, like we're together. And it's so good to be um, as a family and friends. We're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 2. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, turn on your mobile devices, however you read scripture. Uh, get ready to go to Matthew chapter 2 as we are going to be walking through, as you can imagine, a bit of the Christmas story today. At the beginning of our series, Always Christmas, as we're celebrating Always Christmas Eve today, and we'll celebrate Always Christmas Day tomorrow uh, together as a church family, uh, we, we started this series with a prayer prompt, something that I have been doing, I've been asking you to do as well, for those of you that have been through this series, and even if this is the first time you're hearing this, I wonder if whether or not you might be seeing something unique this year. The prayer prompt is simply this. Heavenly Father, allow me to see Christmas through your eyes this year. What an interesting thought. Allow me to see Christmas through your eyes this year. And I just want you to take a moment. I want you to think. What are you seeing? Is it something that you were excited about? Something maybe you weren't so excited about. Something different, something new, something old, something blue. That's a wedding. Uh, but something, maybe you're seeing something for the first time or again, but now you're seeing it through God's eyes. Tomorrow, as we gather as a church family on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock, I'm going to ask this question again. And tomorrow, I'm going to give you an opportunity to actually say, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? What have you seen this year? Our big idea for today is simple. God is always ready to rescue. I'm hoping that through our talk today, through the sermon today, that you'll be able to see that God is always ready to rescue. Always ready to rescue. Have you ever noticed that some Christmas songs are sad now, there's plenty of, like, happy, joyful, exciting songs like this. <laughs> or perhaps maybe even this little gem. <laughs> and, of course, this one's good in two different languages. You should see your heads when those songs pop up. Like the, the songs come on and you start moving your heads. You try not to, but it just happens. It's like this involuntary response. But there's also some sad songs that we hear at Christmas like this. Or maybe this somber tune. And of course, for my dear friend, Pastor Craig, this terrible song. Christmas, <laughs> right? 
of the worst song in all girls. And everybody sings it. It's on every radio station. And, uh, and then there's this uh, final one. Love yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart So Christmas can be both merry and bright, but it can also be something not so joyful, not so merry and bright. Oftentimes you can find yourself surrounded by joy, and yet at the same time there's pain. It was either the Christmas of 2001, 2002, one of those Christmases. I remember sitting in my apartment, and I remember thinking to myself, huh, it's Christmas Eve. It was just a moment that I just had this epiphany. Apparently, maybe there wasn't enough around me that said Christmas is here. Maybe I didn't think about it. Maybe I wasn't around my family enough. I don't know. This was when I, way before. This was before I even met my wife. Uh, obviously, before we had our children, and I was just living my own life. And I remember sitting there. This was my Grinch year. I remember sitting there and thinking in my recliner as I'm looking out this sliding glass windows. I was over in Talmadge in Whitehall Apartments, and I'm. I remember thinking to myself, huh, maybe it doesn't matter anymore. Maybe it's all gone. I don't know that I will ever celebrate Christmas again. And it was one of those moments where I began to realize, yeah, maybe what the joy that I once knew is now nothing but pain. I mean, even being surrounded by joy. I mean, for crying out loud, living in Talmadge, they're all about decorating that circle. I mean, there's colors everywhere, right? Bright and beautiful and glorious. And as you drive around it, even tonight, if you see it, it's just so beautiful and so pretty. Everything's lit up. And yet in the midst of all that joy, I was feeling great pain. And I want to tell you, it's not because of anything that anybody did anything to me or left me out. It's because of choices that I was making. Decisions that I was making to alienate, isolate people, and to make myself completely alone. That's right. Did you hear me? I was not the victim. Whenever something happens or you feel alone, we say, well, somebody must have, yeah, this guy right here was the one that did it. And as the Lord allowed shortly after that, I began to realize that I need to make some changes in my life. Now, not perfect, but better choices. I met my wife. Uh, at the time, my girlfriend, we, we, we got married. Uh, we got engaged nine months later, and then a year and a half engagement. Why? I'll never know. But a year and a half of engagement, and then we were married. And now I just, with our three kids, I can't imagine not being around at Christmas time. I think... Based on the Matthew 2 account of the story, the Christmas story, and you can see this through the flavors of Luke 2 as well, there was great joy at the first Christmas when Jesus was born, but there was also at the same time great pain. Now, I know you're probably expecting a nice, fluffy, everybody loves everybody sermon today, but I'm not quite that kind of guy. And I'm hoping that we can reveal some truth today, but I'm going to have to peel away a little bit of what you already think you know. 
Walk with me as we go through this in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to bring us up to speed where we are in the story. Last week, we uh, had the story. We talked about the nativity. We talked about a more of an accurate scene of the nativity where the shepherds have already come and they uh, worshiped. They shared the good news about Jesus. The shepherds were the lowest on the social ladder. Nobody wanted to be around them. The elite in Jerusalem didn't think that they were ceremonially clean so they couldn't be in the temple. They were always working. They were certainly dirty and yucky and they were taking care of all of the animals that they were responsible for. So we have the story from last week where we learn about how the, the angels announced in the sky may be singing, but then again, it doesn't actually say that. But there was a great announcement that, hey, Jesus is here. And the shepherds say, we should go check this out. And they run and they check out. And so last week we learned how the lowest of the lowest in the social standings of the culture were invited they were told first about what was going on with this Jesus. At this point in time, last week, we had baby Jesus in a manger. Baby Jesus lying in a manger. They were at a, you guys remember the term, there was no room in the inn. Um, and we talked about that. So if you missed some of those details, I encourage you, go back, myclc.info, and review some of that so that you can kind of catch up to see like, oh, what was he talking about? The inn is an interesting thought. A better translation would be caravansary, where caravans of people and animals and equipment would come into an area and they would rent a space. Uh, no innkeeper, though. They just, either the room was available or the room was was not available for them to rent. So they either went to the courtyard in the middle where they typically kept the animals or they went outside where there was a where there was a cave. And then there's probably animals out there. We don't know exactly what animals. We just know that there were probably some animals there. And so we're leaving this scene. The shepherds have left and they're telling everybody, "Hey, did you hear? Hey, did you hear?" And everybody was excited about what they had heard. Now we're going to transport into time, into the future a little bit, from the manger. That's right. According to the book of Matthew chapter 2, we read that the, this story picks up when Jesus is now a child. And they're staying in a house. Interesting uh, that, they, that they were, we, we typically have the shepherds and the wise men all of the nativity, baby, baby Jesus. Uh, scripture doesn't teach that the wise men met baby Jesus, but rather the child Jesus. As we go into Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 is where I'm going to start here in a moment. I'll get there, I promise. I did at the last service, so I'm sure that I can do it uh, this service. There's two characters, uh, two groups that I want you to be aware of. One character for sure, King Herod. I want to introduce you to King Herod. Not the Hollywood version of a king that's just kind of a little selfish, but I want you to introduce you to the biblical King Herod that we know from history, and I want to introduce you to the wise men. First of all, let's talk about King Herod. You need to know who this guy actually was. King Herod was not just a Grinch. King Herod was not just in a bad mood his whole life. King Herod was absolutely evil in every way. He was evil. He was insecure. And when you have an evil, insecure leader, nothing goes well. 
He was so insecure that he had actually, at one point in time in his life, had killed one of his wives and two of his sons so that they could never challenge his status as king. In fact, he had been known so many times to just to do things like that, that there was a, there was a, a statement, there was a story, a theme that went around with people that said it was better to be King Herod's animal or pig than it would be to be his son or his family. You're like, what? Was he really that bad? Uh, yeah, he was really that bad. Even more, at the time that he was about to die, he was roughly about 70, somewhere around there, and he's on his deathbed. About a week before this, he knew that nobody was going to cry because he was dying. In fact, probably everybody was going to celebrate. Yes, ding dong, the witch is dead, the witch is dead, right? Everybody was going to sing that, well, maybe not that song, but certainly a celebratory tune. And he knew it. And he wasn't going to have it. If there wasn't anything, he was going to control to the day he died people around him. So he ordered that all the noble citizens in that area be arrested. And on the day that he died, all of them to be executed. Why? Because he knew that there were not going to be any tears for him. So in order to make sure that were at least tears on the day he died... He was going to make sure through the death of these noble citizens that people sobbed and wailed. Even if it wasn't for him, at least he would know that there was crying. I know we know some weird people in our lives. There is nobody in our lives as evil and has been able to pull off what he has done. We have not met such a person. I know we got some rough people in our lives, right? People that were always like, Jesus, you need to save this person, no doubt. This was a really bad dude. And so when, when, the, when the wise men, we're going to talk about the wise men in just a minute. I want to introduce you to the wise men. When the wise men showed up to Herod and they said, hey, where's the king of the Jews? We came to worship him. That wasn't just a, oh, I'm not really sure moment. That was probably a gut-wrenching moment of anxiety, fear, insecurity for King Herod. Because he was given the title, the king of the Jews. And he liked that title. He really liked it. So if somebody was going to come up against him, try to take his title as king of the Jews, who's this? The, the wise men said, yeah, where's this new king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And Herod says, well, when you find him, come back and report to me because I would like to worship him too. Not true. No way whatsoever this guy was going to worship anything but himself and his status. He was looking to remove anything that could come up against his position. And so, go find him. His thought, so that I could kill him. Makes perfect sense. He's done it before. He would be most likely to do it again. That's Herod. Happy Christmas, right? That's King Herod. Now, let's talk about the wise men for a minute. You know that song? It was written back in 1857. It kind of goes with, We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we traverse afar. 
Why do we think there was three kings? There's nothing in scripture that says there was three kings. We typically pick three kings because there was three what? Gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. We look at the text and of course we have beautiful nativity scenes and we have Christmas stories where they come, you know, one brings the gold and one brings the frankincense and one brings the myrrh. And it's interesting that we would say three were there because most likely there was more of an entourage of individuals that were coming because why in the world would King Herod, this big bad dude of Jerusalem, why would he care about three guys coming in on camels? What are they going to do? Unless he saw an entourage of hundreds of people possibly coming, not on camels, but on very beautiful, gorgeous steeds. They would come in in such a status that would declare, hey, we're showing up and you're going to know about it. And it says in the text that Herod was actually troubled. Bit of an understatement in the English language. He was actually completely freaked out. Totally freaked out. Why would he be freaked out by three kings? Exactly. There was most likely an entourage coming up to Jerusalem. And then it also says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed too. Perturbed, if you will. And why would all of Jerusalem be perturbed? Well, you know that statement, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Have you heard that? Still true. Uh, so, if that, so you've heard that. Well, if King Herod's not happy... Nobody's going to be happy. So I'm sure people were freaking out going, oh my gosh, King Herod's not happy. What's going on? And everybody's kind of wigging out. So we have these wise men that have come. Um, but we, we, we say we three kings. We say there was three. There was actually probably a lot more people. And they weren't even kings. What? Really? They weren't even kings. They were actually more king makers. There's a group of magi, better, better looked at as a wise men magi, um, that were actually ones that would affirm and seal the next king that would come. So they were literally king makers. They weren't kings themselves. So it begs the question, oh, that, that they must have worshipped the Hebrew God, the one true God, right? The God in flesh, baby Jesus, that we're here to worship today. Actually, no. By, by all rights, they were pagans. They, they had a single God that they worshipped, but it wasn't the God. It wasn't the most high God. They focused more on the element of like fire and things of that nature. Magician, if you will. And so the Magi's. But why would they show up to King Herod and say, hey, where's this king of the Jews that we know about? Where would they have heard? Travel with me back for a moment to the Old Testament. If you've read any of the Old Testament or heard any sermons about the Old Testament, you know about a king known as King Nebuchadnezzar. And at one point in time, he conquers the land and takes with him a young boy by the name of Daniel. Daniel was given the, the ability to be able to interpret dreams. God would interpret the dream, give him the, the deal. And Magi 
were always with the kings. So you'd have the king and you'd have the magi, which were the advisors, the spiritual advisors. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, says that he doesn't remember it, but we know that he's not all that honest. And so he says, hey guys, come here. Tell me about my dream. Certainly, king, absolutely. Long live the king. Tell us your dream. We'll tell you what it means. No, no, that's not how it's going to work. You tell me what I dreamed. Then I want you to tell me what it meant. Well, nobody can do that. And then Daniel steps in on the scene and totally saves their bacon. He says, tell me about it. Well, I can't do it, but the God I serve can. Here's what you dreamed. Here's what it meant. And because of that moment, Daniel was made the chief of the Magi. And he was able to influence his, what he had known, his Jewish faith, into the curriculum, if you will, of what the Magi was learning. And so now the ancestors were given what Daniel was sharing with them. So they would have had access and knowledge to what all this, what they knew about the Jews looking for the coming Messiah. Fast forward back to where we are in Matthew chapter 2 and their ancestors appear knowing that, hey, this must be it because we followed not a star or the star, but his star. And so we know that he's got to be here somewhere. And they began to look for the king of the Jews. You see how the Bible just intersects everything? All of scripture wrapped up in one guy, two events. Jesus Christ, his first coming, his second coming. You can see it all pieced together. So we have these magis. When we sing We Three Kings of Orient... That kind of got thrown in there later on um, because it really wasn't the Orient as we know of it today. It was actually Medo-Persia or even modern-day Iran where the wise men would have come from. Interesting. So that brings us up to where we are. You have been introduced to King Herod. You're welcome. And we've also been introduced to not three kings but some wise men, magi, coming with their entourage on their way to see not a baby, but a child. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. Now, interesting thought, just kind of for fun here. I, I'd like to point out, whenever you see Mary Noda mentioned and Jesus is with him, Jesus, interestingly enough, Matthew always mentions Jesus and then his mother. You see, Jesus was always the point. Mary was not. Like you and me, we are part of the story, tools, if you will, in the hands of the potter. Jesus is always viewed as the focus, the point of the story. So here we see it again. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and, he, and they bowed down to worship him. They don't bow down to anyone unless they're a king. And for a kingmaker, this was a big deal. These guys were on the high end of the social ladder. Last week, we looked at the dudes that were on the lowest rung of the social ladder. Whoever you are, wherever you think you are, or wherever you literally are, everybody is invited to a place 
where Jesus can interact with you. And so they walk in, they see him, and they bow down to worship him. First and foremost, they bow down. They present themselves first. And then they go, hey, we got gifts. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, and in the practical sense, let's talk about some of their practical senses of what their gifts meant. Gold makes sense because, well, frankly, they were going to see a king, and you don't go see a king without some flavor of gold up in your gift. Like, you go to it, that represents a king, kingship, royalty, and so you wouldn't give him anything else other than that. But also, in a practical sense, it helped them fund the journey that was to come. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but more of that tomorrow on Christmas Day. We're going to talk a little bit about that journey. But the gold was actually used to be able to fund their journey. Makes, makes perfect sense they would. Frankincense. We have gold, and then we have frankincense. Frankincense is an interesting uh, scent, if you haven't smelled it before. I actually uh, have it in an oil form, frankincense. It's a very, very rich beautiful smelling aroma that one or two drops in a diffuser could fill this whole room with this sense of frankincense. And then when you breathe it in, there's a peace, there's a calming, there's a soothing, if you will. Additionally, priests would use frankincense when they would be offering the, uh, the, the, the meal sacrifice, the meal, the meal that they would do uh, service in the temple, they would use frankincense. So why would they give them something that priests would use? Well, we know that later on in Jesus' life, and especially because he died for us, our sins, he's considered the great high priest. This represents and shows that this is his priesthood. Priests would use it. Makes good sense that they would be able to use it. Practically, it keeps the stench down a little bit too for whenever they would, uh, whenever they would burn it. It was a sap and they would harden and then they would also grind it into a powder perhaps and they would burn it. A beautiful aroma would surround them, maybe taking away from some of the stink. So then we've got gold, we've got frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh's the weird gift. Myrrh's the gift you get from your strange uncle that you just kind of open and you go, thanks. I have no idea what it is, but I really appreciate what you gave me. It's one of those gifts that you just, you, you either re-gift or you're too ashamed to re-gift. You just kind of make it disappear. Maybe even worse than the pink nightmare outfit. From Christmas Story. Okay, moving on. This is the weird gift. Why is it weird? Because in the day of Jesus, people would use this as kind of an embalming fluid. Right? Why would they do that? Why would you give that to a child? Well, if you fast forward to the time that Jesus died, we read that he was buried with, what, about 100 pounds of myrrh. They would use myrrh to actually tamper down the smell of the decay. So then it wouldn't be so rich. And the myrrh would actually cover that. Why, I ask you, would you give a child myrrh? Unless you realize how joy and pain 
come together in this symphony of God does however God does. And this child, though precious, though beautiful, though glorious, singing, announcing, right? This child, though every child will die one day, right? They'll grow up perhaps, Lord willing, and then pass away. This child was born in order to die for you and for me. These gifts are more than just, I don't know, grab some myrrh off the table. It was much richer than that. There's truth, there's practicality to it as well. And it would have been a sense of, oh, I get it. We may not get it too much here, but they definitely understood it there. Verse 12, when it was time to leave, they returned to their, their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, in the text, the literal text is actually saying that instead of going back the way they came, the entourage, if you will, the Magi, went just a different direction back home. I get that. But it is interesting that anybody that comes before Christ and is introduced to Jesus just doesn't return the same. They just don't return the same. You are a new creation in Christ. The Magi, yeah, just simply went a different direction. But I'm confident there was a difference, a change, if you will. What they had always known was coming was here. These were intelligent people, intelligent people that knew what was going on. Now processing the change that is to come. So that brings us to verse 13. Great joy, great celebration, great worship. And at the same time, we have great tragedy. Verse 13, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared. Now, through this series, we've seen how Gabriel and an angel of the Lord appeared, gave announcements, had moments of interaction, talked to Mary, talked to the shepherds, right? Talked to Joseph. And we talked through what that looked like. We talked about why people would be most likely terrified to experience an angel, because it may not be what we always think they are. And so, and sometimes even just in human form, there's a moment where this angel appears because it's no longer good news. Good news, you're pregnant, you're going to give, son, give birth to a son, the savior of the world, yay. Hey, good news, don't let go of Mary because she's, gonna, she, she's telling the truth, yay, right? Good news, shepherds, savior's here, yay. This was not a celebratory announcement. This was an incredible warning, and here's why. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. And the angel said, they, uh, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod is searching Jesus out and it's not going to go well. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled. Keep in mind what I'm about to read. God is always in control of, of anything and everything. He's never confused. He's never shocked. He never has to pivot. 
He always knows exactly what's going on. And through our sinfulness, he chooses to use us. And he used this situation, and it fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Here's why this was such a big deal. Herod talked to the wise men, gave a timeline on when the star probably appeared, which means when the child was born. Since they found out that the Magi went a different direction, once again, Herod freaked out, completely agitated, upset, just kind of like, ugh. And in that moment, decided that, well, if it was born here, let's put a gap right here. Okay, go out and kill every two-year-old boy and under. We're just not even going to need to search for them. Go out and just take them all out. That way I don't even have to worry about it. Then my kingdom will not be challenged. Terrible, terrible stuff that happened at the time of joy there was great pain. You know what I'm talking about because in a time of Christmas, there's so much possibility and joy and yet there are some that are experiencing along with joy surrounding them, great pain. They do coexist. They existed at the beginning, at the first Christmas when Jesus was born. See, we read through the scripture, we think it's all just fluff and cute little stories. And yet time and time again, we read how God was able to rescue. We'll talk more about that even more as we see about how Mary and Joseph and Jesus returning home and what that looks like uh, as we gather tomorrow. But there was a time in the book of Psalm. Uh, Psalms chapter 80 that I want to read just a couple verses to you. The Israelites are in trouble yet again. And they know it. And they call out to the Lord. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God enthroned above the cherubim. That display your radiant glory. Show us your mighty power. Come to rescue us. Turn us again. Uh, turn us again to yourself, O oh God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. We messed up again. We acknowledge we need you. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? As I pray over our community, as I pray over individuals that I know and interact with on a regular basis, I wonder if we can relate to a shepherd, right? We have good pensions, we have good jobs, we have a good decent family, we have food in the refrigerator for more than days, in fact we're throwing away stuff that goes bad, we have all of our physical needs met, and for us to cry out for the Lord to rescue us from what? I got this, it's not a big deal, then why would the Magi show up and acknowledge through humility of bowing before Jesus their need. You understand we're all spiritually dead until we are saved by Jesus himself and we are given new life. 
No matter how well you think you got it going on, no matter how together everything is, and there's nothing wrong with organizing your life well, but understand regardless of where your status is on the bottom of the social rung or on the top, we all need Jesus because Jesus changes everything. Joy and pain together, acknowledging them that they actually can go hand in hand. So do you need to call for help? Truly, do you know this Jesus that I speak of, that God came in the form of man, this child? He became an embryo so that he could be born, so that he could grow to become an adolescent, so that he could become a teenager, 12 years old, teaching in the temple, so that he could eventually lead as a 30-year-old uh, three years of ministry so that he could die for you and for me because of the wages of sin is death? Have you met this Jesus? So that because, because of that, then he conquers death and he raises uh, again and he says, hey, I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I'm coming yet again. What an incredible Jesus that we have the privilege of knowing. Do you need to call him for help? Spiritually. I know you've got everything else together. Relationships are solid. Accounts are fine. Everything's good. But spiritually, are you still bankrupt? Do you need to be rescued from something or someone? Is there a relationship maybe you're actually in that's harmful to you, but you're not acknowledging it? Maybe you need to just call out to him, Lord, guide me in this, help me in this, rescue me from this. Do you need to be rescued from something? I mean, after, after all, we're all sinners. We all have the same need. Do you need to be rescued from your own choices like I did? That I just drank myself into an oblivion for at least a solid two years. I know you say, well, I've done a lot more than that. Sure, those are your choices. This is what almost wrecked me and almost took me out. But God saw fit that even though I was making poor choices, that he kept me going forward. Do you need to be rescued from your own choices? Remember, you're not always the victim. Sometimes you're the one causing it. Or maybe truly you've been honoring the Lord for a while. And you'd say, listen, nothing's coming to my mind. Could you help someone who needs to be rescued? Maybe someone in your life that just needs a coffee date with you or a conversation or just needs to watch, uh, you know, a game on TV with you or watch a movie or, I don't know, play a game. And they just need to be in your life. Maybe somebody needs your rescuing, needs you to guide them to the one that does the rescuing. Because after all, God is always ready to rescue. That's our simple message for today. God is always ready to rescue. I know, I'll do that later, right? Well, you can always choose Jesus later until you can't. And if you wait until you can't, you won't be able to. Psalm 91 that was read by the Bethel family. Thank you, Bethel family, for lighting the candle, for praying over us this afternoon. Uh, Maddie read, 
The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. I will call, uh, they will call uh, on me. I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. That's the God we serve. That's the God we speak of. So what do we do with all this? Well, here's your next steps. What's one way that you need God to rescue you or someone you love right now? And how can we pray for you? Think through these things. It's not about just doing. It's about being. Who needs rescue today? And who needs you to help rescue them? For those of you that are, want to take this conversation even further, uh, think through this discipleship moment here. Follow up with each other about the next step and pray over your need or someone else's need. Accountability, man. Give each other great accountability so that you can stay on task, honoring the Lord and by serving him with your family. Now, why does it even matter, right? Why does it even matter that we spread the message? If the message was never spread to begin with, where would it have ever gone? It wouldn't have spread. The message must spread. And we are called, we are commanded by God to spread this message. And I want to give you a visual about what that looks like. You were all given a candle when you came in. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get one. What I'm going to do is I'm going to light my candle here. And then I'm going to come around. And at the front of each one of the sections, I'm going to light your candle. Just one person in each section is all I'm going to do. And then I want you to turn around and I want you to simply share it. It really is quite simple. You don't need to know anything else. You don't need to come up with any fancy anything. With this, we're just sharing it. And we're going to watch how it sh just spreads throughout this group of people, this community. And then I'm going to, and then we're going to have somebody come up to the balcony as well to get you guys. So together, let's stand. Now receive the blessing as we head out here today. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will fill you uh, with, his, with his love and his passion and his joy. Now say it with me. Go and be the church.